0: Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to TheDispatch.com to sign up for newsletters, find out all the cool stuff that we're doing, and to generally become a happier, more fulfilled person. Today's episode is brought to you by Bluevine. More about them in a little bit. So uh, here's the deal um, we, uh, we're going to have an exciting episode entirely about the coronavirus. Um, but uh, we had to postpone that. So, fingers crossed, it won't be cured by the time our guest comes on. <laughs> <laughs> That's a horrible thing to um, say. I'm kidding. I'm <laughs> kidding. Uh, but we also been planning for a long time to do sort of a uh, sort of catch up on what's going on in the Dispatch, plus just regular rank punditry with uh, my partner in crime, Steve Hayes, the CEO and also editor of the Dispatch. I'm the editor in chief. It gets very Byzantine, trying to figure out lines of authority. Basically, everything is kind of like a um, Dark Knight uh, Joker tryout with pool cues. But anyway, <laughs>
1: uh, Steve, uh,
0: thank you for walking all the way from your desk.
1: I'm happy to be here. Yeah. I mean, basically, it works like I report to you, and then you report to me. Yeah. And then I probably circle back and report to you again. Yeah.
0: Or, or uh, The organizational flow chart kind of looks like a Mobius strip. It's weird. Um, <laughs> so. Uh, we are recording this the day of the Iowa caucuses, and we are both straining to contain our excitement. Um, it doesn't make sense to, like, go too far out on a limb with some punditry on this, because by the time this airs, um, uh, we'll actually know what well, happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so why why make yourself look like an idiot by making too many predictions? But. Uh, what's your basic lay of the assessment But of the What's of land? your prediction? Yeah, <laughs> I, actually, There's no point in me making predictions. <laughs> right, but you're exactly. the seasoned you're veteran, veteran yeah. reporter. so you can go ahead.
1: No, I was I mean, I was thinking about this uh, as I was driving in today. I mean, w- what what are the real challenges is i I think this is the first time I haven't been on the ground in Iowa in twenty, twenty four years, something like that. And it does feel different for, for the caucus. for the Iowa caucuses. Yeah. yeah, i mean if 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 you've spent time there and you've done, a lot of reporting and you're used to crisscrossing the state and driving all over and hitching rides with interns and doing the whole the whole thing really taking in the caucuses I do feel like I don't know nearly as much mm-hmm. because I haven't done any of that so with that um, caveat at the beginning I, I guess I, I'm more or less by the argument that there's a uh, there's something going on with Bernie Sanders yeah. here, which I think is now gelled into conventional wisdom over the past couple weeks as you look at polling in Iowa, in New Hampshire, um, actually a poll out in the Post and Courier in South Carolina that showed Bernie Sanders closing what was at once a huge gap yeah. between Sanders and Joe Biden. Um, so I, I guess I buy the idea that, that He's going to do well. I mean, certainly he's expected to get one of the three or four tickets out of Iowa. I think he has a shot at winning it. And then I think the the, the question will be, um, you know, how well does Joe Biden do if he has a if he if he has a really bad um, showing? Does that sort of accelerate the panic that I think we? We'll see to a certain extent, we are already seeing in the Democratic establishment uh, with the prospect of a Bernie Sanders nominee.
0: Um, so uh, for for someone like me who first of all, is a legendarily great indoorsman and has generally avoided leaving his home <laughs> for any reason whatsoever, <laughs> um, I, I just have a, I'm curious about this like I've done, Some on the ground stuff. I've been to New Hampshire for the primary a bunch of times. I can't remember last time I was in the Iowa caucuses, though. I did go to the state fair this year, so that was interesting. And um, but, do you think that you ever get you know when reporters go on the ground there? On the one hand, obviously that you do pick up a feel for what's going on, but there is a certain kind of like you are checking out a bunch of trees and you can miss the forest kind of
1: thing. Sure, there is no question that that happens. I mean, there there are a bunch of different sort of traps. You can fall into it. I would say early in my career, when I, when you did this kind of reporting, that was sort of reporting in the days and weeks, months leading up to an event, where then you have an outcome. Um, you know, one of the real uh, traps was going and doing conducting interviews that were meant to confirm what i already believed. Right. And a lot of people do that. I mean i think yeah. you get reporters from mainstream outlets do that you get reporters from ideological outlets that do that. You ask questions in such a way that elicits responses. Tell that. me how
0: income inequality is going to affect your Exactly. Vote. Yeah. Exactly <laughs> right.
1: Um, or you know like do do you think that Marco Rubio is as charming as you know right. other people have said, you know. Um, so that's a that's a trap and and i think it's one thing that reporters do because, you know, part of what we're trying to do is make sense of what is often just chaos, right? You're trying to impose a framework on what you're seeing or on what people are seeing to make it all make sense. And sometimes it really doesn't make sense. And if you go to Iowa, you'll find that you talk to people, and this is not just true of Iowa, of course. You talk to voters and they they don't look at a lot of these issues in in a way that that's anything approaching the way that we look at these issues. I always certainly again early in my reporting career overestimated the importance of ideology. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought you'd see the Gallup polls and you'd see thirty eight percent of the country are self identified conservatives, and I thought that that more or less meant that they they see the world like I do. They care about the things that I do, and it's just completely not true. Yeah. And you really found that well, that's part out. You are crazy. Well, that is, I mean, I'm admitting to all these problems with my analysis, but you, you know, you'd go and you'd, you'd sit down with a group of voters and you'd have somebody talk to you at great length about how they were, um, you know, a, a Marco Rubio, Donald Trump voter or, or a Marco Rubio, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton voter. They didn't know where they were and it. You know, you hear something like that and you think, gosh, that just doesn't make any sense. These people don't believe the same things. They don't have the same characteristics and qualities. But people are coming to this with their own sets of interests and their own sets of preferences. And in some cases, they haven't paid much attention. And it's a purely impressionistic thing. In other cases, they've paid a lot of attention. And they know specifically what it was that Marco Rubio was saying on ag policy or Hillary Clinton believes on ethanol so it's it's very instructive i feel that's why I feel in in this context, I really do feel like i I'm sort of flying blind. now some people don't need to do this. People who are smarter than I am and spend a lot of time looking at poles and atmospherics and things like that 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 don't require you to be on the ground, but I like to sort of feel it and touch it,
0: yeah, so it's funny. we've talked about this before, but um um it's not quite as acute now that we don't have exit poles the way we used to. But there was always this um, sort of intellectually dishonest thing that would happen where, like, just to give an example, Um, an exit poll cannot be made public until 7 p.m. or something. But when you're going on TV, they give it to you at 6 p.m. Yeah. And so you would see, you know, and I'd be guilty of this. I'm not sort of casting, you know, aspersions. It's just sort of one of the weird, quirky corruptions of the way the system works. Where people would offer sort of general punditry, eh, it feels like Dean may not be carrying it across, but I, you know it's too soon to tell. When in fact, yeah. they know Dean's not doing it. So they're looking at the exit polls, yes. right? And um, or they
1: think Dean's not doing it,
0: right? Because also that's the other problem is that the exit polls, the early exit polls were often really the John wrong. Kerry yeah. ones. Remember, remember, yeah, yeah, John
1: yeah. Kerry was just it was just that the, that day people spent the day thinking that they were measuring the drink. John Kerry yeah. was going to be president, and um,
0: but. Uh, this morning I was watching Morning Joe, and um, um, which is always, you know, it's sort of like playing with a loose tooth. It it, it hurts, but you can't stop yourself. And um, the conviction that all of these guys who were there had that Bernie was going to pull something out um, made me feel that either the conventional wisdom on the ground is really, really strong, or Everyone's saying that on the ground because it's true, you know. So really, I'm not, not any closer to the truth, except in so far as if Bernie has a bad night, right? If he comes in second now, the shock among the punditocracy will be this is like another Howard Dean moment, and he flames
1: out, right? <laughs> I mean, it it could be. I think he still has, you know, New Hampshire and Iowa don't always agree. I mean, they often don't agree, and and I think Bernie's polling looks pretty good in New Hampshire. Yep. It's a state that I think it is it is a good place for him. Um, so I don't think if he doesn't do well, he's sort of out of it. On but that will be like one. Yeah, but that will be like one of the twenty four hour stories. No, it's it. I mean, and this is this is part of the problem with modern political reporting is it's an expectations game. The conventional wisdom congealed and some to some extent because you have reporters out there actually talking to voters and getting a sense and you hear the same thing from voters enough you start to develop your own conclusions about it but as often as not i would say particularly in the television industry you have reporters talking amongst themselves and you know somebody will say well i talked to this one voter at a klobuchar rally the other day and she said that her friends at church told her that, that and it it becomes this huge game of telephone, yeah, but then it becomes it's it's conventional wisdom, and it's one of the reasons that just as the the game of telephone is designed to show that that's an unreliable way to convey information, it shows why the conventional wisdom is so easily punctured
0: yeah so on the uh dis so on the dispatch podcast available most wednesdays um Uh, uh, Sarah Esger went around the horn asking everybody for their predictions. You predicted Bernie, I believe. I did. Yeah, and I predicted Biden in part because you predicted Bernie. Um, (laughs) And, uh, you know, my general rule of thumb, if Hayes is for it, I'm against it. And uh, um, but part of my argument was that if you look at, first of all, how the if you look at who's not going to hit this 15% threshold that you need to in the caucuses, those people, the Klobuchar people, if they don't hit 15%, have to go to somebody else. Yep. They're not going to go to Bernie, right? Buttigieg's people, I'm unclear. You know, I, I he'll like a, you can definitely see some of them, some of those Wine Track types going to Warren or to um, Bernie, but my hunch is because his because some of these people are Driven more by personality than they are by so sort of the ideological stuff, as we were saying, that I think Biden picks up the bulk of Buttigieg people. Um, I think Yang is a friggin' Rorschach test. It's impossible to figure out yeah. where the bulk of his people go. Some of them go to Trump. I think there's actually some Possible. polling to suggest yeah. it. But then there's this also there's this other dynamic um, that the caucuses. And just for the record, I think the Iowa caucuses should be abolished, and they are a distorting cancerous tumor in american democracy but Boo. uh Boo. that said they're designed basically to make it really easy for college students to show up and for retirees to show up yeah and so it's a real test of organizing the oldsters versus the youngsters and the people in the middle they just might not show up and it seems to me that that's a built-in advantage for biden because we know that the oldsters will vote right that's what they do we don't always know that the youngsters will vote. Um, sometimes they do, like with Obama. There's evidence to suggest going from 2016 that they will for Bernie. Yeah. But but they need to do it in huge numbers to counteract the oldsters. So uh, if Biden pulls out a squeaker, I think it gives him really big momentum. If, he, if I were the Biden people, I was talking to my wife about this who used to do this kind of work. Um, her argument was that the... Biden people should be going around talking about what a great night Bernie's going to have. Yeah. Right? Because so that way, if he does have a great night, right. we knew this was baked right. in the cake, right. right? It was foregone conclusion. And if he doesn't have a great night, he screws up on the expectations game. Um, but I, it seems to me that, that it's really a race. If it's Biden and Bernie close, you could really see Buttigieg or whoever comes in third pulling sort of like a Clinton comeback kid, turning a second place into a win kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but there's just uh, also evidence that we just don't know what's going on. Yeah, to happen. I mean, I think I, I,
1: th- I would be. I, I think Bernie has a potential to really turn out um, students, college kids, first time voters, uh, in part because the caucuses have been moved back. This was a big issue when they used to have the caucuses right after New Year's, because in some cases the kids weren't back at, mm-hmm. at that time, back from Christmas break. But now that it's in early February, you, they'll all be there, and they're there to be organized. So I think Bernie has the potential to, to, to drive a lot of them in polls. A lot of them also
0: will be bust from places like Chicago, which is what happened with Obama, is that you can play games where you, re- one of if, in the great list of Goldberg electoral reforms, other than getting rid of the primaries entirely, um, I would argue that you cannot vote in primaries unless you've established residency there for a significant period of time. The idea that college kids can just, the whole reason we have Bernie Sanders to begin with um, is that he became mayor of Burlington because he had all these college kids at UVM who didn't care about property taxes, schools, business climate, any of that kind of stuff. They only voted their BS ideological stuff. And so why not vote for the socialist? And I would say bringing in outsiders, bringing in people who have only lived in the state briefly because they're college students, um, you should vote where you actually have lived most of your life, not, you know, as a sort of a ringer. Um, but no, you, you may be right. Uh, you can tell I just I want to argue about why we should get rid of the Iowa caucuses because we wouldn't have ethanol if we didn't have the Iowa caucuses.
1: But um, there probably also wouldn't have been any reason for me to go to Archie's Wayside in Lamar's Iowa and have one of the greatest steaks I've ever had in my entire life. It's yeah. one of the best. I, mean, I don't know if they would if they would. um reject being called the supper club I mean I think uh-huh. it certainly fits the description I have some credibility on the issue being from Wisconsin among the most amazing restaurants you can ever eat at and I've been getting pictures from my Iowa friends who are making their way through Archie's I recommended that Andrew Egger go to Archie's to get a steak and he was unfortunately going the opposite direction and I told him this is This is how you know you're a first-time Iowa caucus reporter, is that you didn't build your entire trip around getting to Archie's. I mean, that's the kind of thing you do where you say, I'm hearing rumors that the 11th place finisher (laughs) is likely to surge. I need to go to Lamar's. So uh,
0: this is just exactly what's wrong with our politics, is that you think the health of our democracy should not – come before a meal you like
1: <laughs> um,
0: but I would say I, that's healthy I don't know I think that's, whole, that's
1: totally healthy for our democracy
0: full disclosure uh, arguably the best steak I one of the top five steaks I've ever had was in Montour Iowa at Rubes hmm. um which is a really weird like I think it's literally a one light town and um they have a. this was a long time ago but I'm told from people on the hive mind of Twitter that it's still there um The cattle
1: yard is literally in the back of the restaurant. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This is like – this is very much like Archie's. Yeah. It's fantastic.
0: All right. So um, moving on from that, as we're talking, we're also wrapping up impeachment. Um, Seems to be ending, I think as you guys put it, in the morning dispatch, which everyone should sign up for, as uh, more of a whimper than a bang. Mm -hmm. Um, I I have – I have, I have strong feelings in this matter, um, but where, where do you think we are? Where do you think – what do you think the precedents that are being set? Well,
1: I think, I think this is one area where our strong feelings overlap considerably. Um, re- Republicans, um, led by Mitch McConnell, successfully batted away attempts to bring in witnesses, including and especially John Bolton, to describe what uh, they saw as part of this. I think that was a mistake. I think it's far more important for politicians, regardless of your political party, to want to actually get the truth of a matter like this, even if we had the basic contours. I mean, you were, I think, one of the first people to write early. You did a, I think it was one of your columns, where you you wrote basically, look, he did it. We know he did it. That's really not in dispute after the fact witnesses that were paraded in front of the House. And... I think that's right. I think it's, that was that was right when you wrote it. It became even more correct as this went along. And it was sort of, um, in, a, in a weird way, sort of refreshing that that's what Lamar Alexander said uh, as he gave his reasons for not voting for more witnesses. He basically said, look, we could have more witnesses. We could have John Bolton, but we know what happened. And the guy did it. He did this thing. And Lamar said it was inappropriate. And you had uh, several Republicans, uh, Republican senators at that point, rush out and sort of embrace that Lamar Alexander argument, saying, in fact, we know that he did it. I still would have liked to have heard from John Bolton. We will no doubt hear from John Bolton. I don't buy the argument that John, as I heard, I, I can't remember which of the Republican senators said this on, on a Sunday show Um Basically saying, we know what John Bolton will tell us. It's not going to add anything. You have no idea what John Bolton is right. going to say. How can you possibly imagine that it wouldn't add anything to this? It's
0: a silly argument. But it's a, it, it's a persuasive argument if you can see that he did it and it
1: doesn't rise to the level of impeachment, right? But, but you don't know that it doesn't rise to the level of impeachment fairly. unless you know what John Bolton said. I mean, what if right. John Bolton added 10 details that had us all smacking our foreheads and saying, geez No, no, no. I think that's fair. I'm just talking about, like,
0: Lamar is in a safe harbor. Rubio is in a safe harbor, politically, not intellectually, morally, statesmanship, whatever. But, all right, so I don't want to turn this into a long rant. But um, as you might recall, uh, our friend Hugh Hewitt had me on his uh, radio show, a lifetime subscriber to The Dispatch. Thank you very much, Hugh. Um, And we debated this stuff, and he was – eager to debate me about the law. He's a lawyer. He would do well with that. Or about the political prospects from all of this. And he was like, which one do you think is your strongest argument about all of it? And my (laughs) argument was, how about just the facts, right? How about just the fact that he did it? And you're not allowed to say that he did it because Trump has a stranglehold on the party. And he says it's a perfect call. So everyone's got to mimic that. And Hugh and I got quite testy. Uh, There's a transcript up. We can link to it in the show notes, but there's also the audio. I recommend people listen to that instead of reading it because you get a better sense of it. The general gist was, I'm crazy for thinking Trump did it, right? When the transcript came out, Roger Kimball, editor of Newer Criterion, made fun of me saying, you know, Hugh says you guys are on different planets. Well, I'll tell you what, Hugh lives on this planet. I don't know what planet Goldberg lives on, yada, yada, yada. Um all these people accusing me of Trump derangement syndrome for just making the basic point. I wasn't saying he should be impeached for it. That is a different question. I just said he did it, right? And the overwhelming response from the sort of the Praetorian guard of Trump world is that's crazy to even suggest that he did it. Now, basically, the vast majority of the senators are settling into the position that, well, of course he did it, but um that's not impeachable. I, I I await to hear you know Roger Gimbel and Hugh Hewitt and Sean Hannity and all these guys go hammer and tongs at Lamar Alexander for saying exactly what I said, for taking for taking exactly the position that I had on the merits. Um, now, right, yeah. I mean, it, it, this is this sort of selective outrage thing where, in the moment, you've got to make whatever arguments are most beneficial to get you where you want to go. Where everybody has to argue like a trial lawyer, for Trump, um, drives me crazy and. It's this insistence that I'm the crazy one, right? Yeah. Like I'm insane for saying stuff. You know, what is the guy who said, "Where do I go to get my reputation back?" Right? I mean, like I'm saying the exact same thing that Lamar said. I mean, I may disagree with him about you know specific stuff, but the fact that he did it is sort of obvious. Everyone says it's obvious, and now it's like statesmanlike to say it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you're doing it to say he shouldn't be removed from office, and you find this kind of thing all over the place, and it just drives me batty.
1: Yeah, it's. It, I mean, this is part of the problem, not to go too deep on on media culture problems, but I mean, this is part of the problem with this sort of instant analysis culture that we live in, because what happens is something comes out, you have only the, the barest details of what's actually happened, but everybody, particularly people on Twitter, jump in and make their bold declaration about what's true and what's not. Who wants to then backpedal and yeah. say, ah, oh, gosh, actually now all this new information has come out and the thing that I said before was not it turns out not to be true. I was wrong. It doesn't happen very often. So I think in this case, and I don't, I w- will concede I was not following what sure. Hugh Hewitt was okay. saying at the yeah. beginning of this or, yeah. or Roger Kimball, but you had a lot of people who came out and said, knowing I think that it would be well received by the the sort of base of the, the Trumpian Republican Party, Oh, this is ridiculous. This is another partisan hatchet job from these, r- these Democrats. You know, the same people who were pushing the Russia collusion hoax are now pushing this. And, you know, we should all just ignore it. At one point, I remember Lindsey Graham actually saying, was asked if he was going to pay attention to the, right. the witnesses. And he said, ah, I'm not going to pay attention. Why would I do that? Right. I said, wow, that's an, that is a moment. Yeah. Right? No, you don't actually want the facts, you don't want to have to be confronted by what's actually happened. But I think in this case, you had so many people who rushed out at the beginning and said, nope, nothing here, nothing to see, no problem. And then of course you get particularly in the the process of the house witness, including witnesses that were friendly to the president that Republicans wanted to hear from laying out a set of facts that made it very clear that the president did exactly what he was charged of doing. And we also know that there are lots of things that we haven't seen that would drive that point even further. OMB documents, again, John Bolton testimony, this really isn't disputable. So I'm living on your planet. I'm not sure what planet <laughs> yeah, so, they're living on. But you see, but you're, <clears throat> once again,
0: you're being the naive, generous people person hugger guy that you are and giving people the benefit of the doubt here uh, forget Hugh and Roger Kimball and all that um, you know Mark Hemingway had this piece where he says that the media the conservatives on the, in the media need to be um, more pro-Trump to reflect where the quote unquote market is or where Republicans are and we don't need to get in the weeds on that I wrote about it in the GFA but part of the thing what I, what I didn't address in my response to it is we both know because you were in the room when I had some of these conversations, and we've talked about other conversations that we've had, that there are many Republican politicians who know he did it, right? They just won't say so in public. Yeah. In private, they're ah, oh, God, well, this guy's giving us making life so difficult for us. Why did he do this? You know, blah, 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 blah. And so the part of the thing that drives me crazy about the sort of the the Mark Hemingway argument is, is that the pundits must lie too Ooh. you know and and isn't there something to be served by if the republican if the republicans who are sort of locked into this partisan stranglehold with the with the president if they are going to hold fast with this popular front when convenient and stick to a lie until like now when they have to tell the truth to explain why they're not going to vote to remove him, Somebody should be telling the truth you know, yeah. on the right. You know, someone conservatives need to hear from somebody that has some credibility as a conservative that you're being sold a bill of goods. And um this argument this too makes people think I'm cr- tre- yeah. that I'm the crazy one for saying, "Hey, wait a second. What's wrong with telling the truth?" Yeah. You know, or making the argument about truth. I'm not saying I have a monopoly on the truth, but it just seems transparently obvious that I'm more right that Trump did it than wrong, given that now even the Republican senators are saying it.
1: Yeah, that's what that's why I say I was sort of both encouraged and discouraged by Lamar's comment at the same time. Right? Yeah. I mean, he's basically saying, yeah, OK, yeah, well, it's obvious to everybody that he did it. If you paid any attention to the to the case that was made, including the, the pushback for the president's team, it was obvious that he did what he did. Um, but who cares, really? It's a hard it's a hard conclusion i mean i am interested in what if anything happens now so we're going to have this vote apparently on wednesday i think we'll get a better sense um of where all of the all you can assume that all the republican senators are going to have to put out some kind of statement to explain their vote this is one of those votes that really matters you know what you did on the you know the the budget reconciliation of 2012 maybe not but on this, people will remember this, and I think everybody, every senator is going to have to put out a statement explaining his or her vote, and we'll have a good sense of exactly how far the, the argument that you made has, has penetrated. But I'm interested in what comes next, and I think this may be why you're starting to see, including Lamar yesterday in his Sunday show appearances, you're starting to see that maybe tiptoe ever so slightly back from that position that he announced mm-hmm. when he said he wasn't going to vote for more witnesses because... Democrats have now said, well, if you believe that this was inappropriate, if you believe that he did something wrong, surely you're in favor of some kind of a punishment, right? Right. Whether it's censure or what have you. And I think you're seeing some of these Republican politicians who are willing to at least acknowledge that there was something wrong say, "Mm, yeah, that's a fair point. What (laughs) what am I in favor of? Yeah. I mean, so it's
0: funny. I mean, I just wrote a comment about this, but among the best, and I, by best I mean most effective arguments that the Republican, the, the White House legal team made, and its various, you know, fellow travelers, is that partisan and partisan impeachments are bad. As Ken Starr put it, we are entering the age of impeachment, which is a very ironic argument for Ken Starr to be making, um, and uh, and that it. It will harm our republic. It will it'll, it'll weaponize this constitutional mechanism. It will deprive, it'll turn, basically, the impeachment function into a no-confidence vote, and the living will envy the dead and all of this stuff, right? And even before the impeachment's over, we see Joni Ernst out there saying um, that if Biden is elected, um, now that they've opened the door to impeachment, the Republicans just may well... Um. Deliver a partisan impeachment of Joe yeah. Biden, you know, yeah. and it it is so shameless in its its first of all, it's it's sort of logical moral inconsistency in the hypocrisy of it. Partisan um,
1: impeachments are bad unless it's my party yeah, that's doing the impeachment.
0: Exactly, right. that's it. You know, partisan impeachments are bad when you do it, not when we do it. You know, yeah. um, and so it's kind of a self fulfilling prophecy at yeah. this point. You know, we have to stop this impeachment because it's partisan, but Because you tried to do a partisan impeachment, we're going to try one next time. It's just so dumb.
1: But you wonder what, I mean, I I didn't hear all of her comments, so I don't know if if she followed up with any specifics about what exactly it would be that she would want to impeach Joe Biden for. the Ukraine stuff. What about it? I mean, this is one of the sort of persistent rumors and things that you hear about um, on the Republican side that just doesn't check out when you dive into the facts of the matter. The Hunter Biden stuff is gross. We've said that from the very beginning. It is gross. It is part of the reason that people are so frustrated with Washington and what's happened here and Hunter Biden making whatever it was, 50,000, 83,000, depending on who you hear, per month to sit on the board of this company that he had no knowledge of. He didn't know the country. He didn't know the industry. It's gross. It's disgusting. It's not at all clear that Joe Biden pushing to have Victor Shokin fired was meant to protect his son in his position on that board in fact given the fact that shokin was not pursuing anti-corruption investigations and his successor no doubt would be pursuing or the hope was that his successor would be pursuing anti-corruption investigations including and especially one into burisma you make the argument that what joe biden did when he pushed victor helped push victor shokin out was to make it more likely that his son would right. be investigated, it was certainly
0: consistent with policy.
1: But it's not what you're hearing. I mean, you're not hearing it, you know, in, from Rick Scott. You're hearing yeah. all of this fuzzing over from um, the president's supporters in the media and elsewhere. And it is it is one of these you you see. You know, I saw the, the Rick Scott video that you you yeah. wrote about. I mean, you just watch the video and you you're tempted to shrug your shoulders like that's just, that's not what happened. That's yeah. not accurate. But also, I mean, there's also, I mean, we,
0: we can get off this in a second, but there's also just the problem of, so they're accusing Trump of doing what Biden actually did, according, this is the lar- argument you get from Republican, you know, defenders of Trump. And then you say, okay, well, if Trump is guilty of it, would that be impeachable? Hell no, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> right, right, do that. right. Okay, right. but... If Biden did it, would that be bad? Yes, that's an outrage. Impeachable. So, so now they want to impeach Biden for doing the thing that Trump was accused of, that they don't think that even if Trump did it was impeachable, but it's impeachable if Joe Biden does it. And that makes me want to cut myself, right? It's pretty, pretty bad. Um, all right. But you know what doesn't make me want to cut myself? <laughs> Making payroll. So as Steve and I have learned um, all too well in recent months, uh, running a business is enough of a challenge securing extra cash flow doesn't have to be. Through BlueVine, getting a line of credit is fast, easy, and simple. BlueVine is an easy, fast way to help support your business growth with a line of credit of up to $250,000. Whether you need money to offset upfront costs, secure inventory, or pay an unexpected expense, through BlueVine, you can help yourself and your business stay secure for any reason. There's no fee to set up your line of credit, and BlueVine never charges maintenance or prepayment fees. Applying is easy. Just go online to getbluevine.com dingo. That's getbluevine.com dingo. Fill out a few simple details, and you're done with your application within minutes seeing an offer will not affect your credit score. Once approved, funds can be received in as fast as 24 hours. Have peace of mind knowing that funds can be drawn with the click of a button for any business expense. Bluevine has helped more than 20,000 customers and has delivered over 2.5 billion in funds to businesses. With an a rating from the Better Business Bureau, and a nearly five-star review on Trustpilot, see why thousands of satisfied business owners have chosen BlueVine as their go-to source for financing. So for listeners of The Remnant, BlueVine is offering a special limited-time promotion of a $100 gift card when you take out a loan or open a line of credit with BlueVine. Go to getbluevine.com slash dingo for details. That's quick. Easy and meaningful help to your business in as little as 24 hours. This promotional offer is subject to terms and conditions that can be found at GetBlueVine.com slash dingo. All right, so uh, we are going to switch gears a little bit here and move off of punditry for a second. We are not going to talk about the Super Bowl. Um, I thought it was a huge win for Missouri. It was great. Good for them. <laughs> uh, their their barbecue sauce still sucks in Kansas. Um and uh, actually it was I think the first uh, enjoyable as a game Super Bowl in a little
1: while. Um, it was a good game. It was a it was a legit they good didn't, game. It wasn't a particularly well played game. Yeah. but it was an interesting game. Yeah, it was an exciting game. Um, and I I
0: succeeded in guilting even though my daughter always fights for a really obscene Super Bowl party dinner with chicken wings and all that kind of stuff. It, I guilted my wife into us doing it even though she wasn't in town. So that was good too. Anyway, um, so we are uh, uh, we are now almost exactly a month since the launch of this thing. A little shy of a month, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And um, we've gotten a little attention. The Atlantic did this big profile of us. It was a little more pessimistic about our chances than um, we would like. But I think it was McKay Coppin's. Work pretty hard to give us a fair hearing,
1: and yeah, um, smart reporter. He understands sort of the dynamics on the center right. Yeah, and um, um, there's a he's kind of like Drew
0: Carey's little brother, but that's not neither here <laughs> nor there. Um, and uh, um, and things are going pretty well. You're the CEO, so why don't you just sort of give our listeners a little update about the the
1: roaring successes and the. Eh,
0: you know, uh, speed bumps.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I mean, of course, you and I were talking about this the other day, but I'll, I'll bring people into the conversation. We felt pretty good from the outset that there was an audience for this thing. The big question was, how big is that audience? And were they willing to pay for the kind of reporting and analysis that we were going to provide? And I, I feel pretty confident that, that that question's been answered. There is, in fact, an audience. It's at this early stage, really, really happy with the right. size of that audience. Both the people who have joined as um, non-paying signups and are getting our stuff for free. We haven't implemented the paywall. That'll come in a couple weeks. But also people who have uh, signed up as annual members or lifetime members. Um, that's gone exceptionally well. Yeah, uh, we basically blown out our projections. Way ahead of, of what we thought, which is, of course, uh, really encouraging. So that's been, uh, you know, that that we don't have a final answer to that question, but we like the answers that we're getting. Right, right the now. trends are good. Certainly going in the right direction. I think the 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 challenging part that's so that's the demand side. The challenging part has been more on the supply side. Yeah, it has been particularly because we wanted to launch this skinny as we called it, um, or as you like to talk about it, the pirate skiff. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's going to be deliberately a small staff. We were not going to have a ton of full-time people and try to build gradually this stable of outside contributors. We're going to do both sort of big-picture analysis, deeper uh, pieces, but also get some outside people to do some reporting. I think it's been more of a challenge than I anticipated to do that. And we had pretty, I think, manageable expectations, three pieces a day of that quality of outside contributors for the website, right? For yeah. for the website, in addition to the the uh, suite of newsletters that we're producing—some da- daily, some weekly, some a couple times a week—with David French
0: seemingly hourly. <laughs>
1: David, <laughs> it's all good too. It's amazing. Um, so that I think has been a that I think has been a bigger challenge. It, we're okay with it, though. I mean, yeah. we're fine having. I'm I'm perfectly fine having one really terrific piece, thought-provoking, um, well-reported, deeply researched piece on the website per day, and that's it. Yep. And that'd be fine. That's sort of the Quillette model. And we talked about that as we built this thing. I mean, Quillette publishes one, usually one big piece, and it's this kind of piece that somebody's obviously put a ton of thought into, a ton of uh, research has gone into it. That uh, that would be fine with me. I still would like to, you know, offer two or three. We have Andrew Egger out in Iowa um this past few days and he's been sending us dispatches from there both for the website and for the morning dispatch newsletter pun intended yeah oh, pun intended um Declan Garvey uh, another reporter is going to head up to New Hampshire later this week and uh file some stories from us out there so firsthand kind of on the ground reporting the stuff that I really want us to be doing a lot of and hope that we can do more of yeah so it's funny I mean the given my experience at NRO and
0: and um, all that, I miss, as President Bush might say, misunderestimated some of this as well. Um, you know, first of all, like reporting is hard and it's expensive. And if the reporting doesn't lead to something, you can't fake it. Yeah. You know, it's sort of like, yep. I remember when we at National Review, we tried to get a gossip columnist, like a Hill gossip columnist, and... It wasn't going to be like who's sleeping with who, though I was always interested in hearing that stuff, but we weren't going to run that stuff. But the problem is, is that by the very nature of rumors, most rumors turn out not to be true. Yeah. And so you could hire someone, have them working eight, 12 hours a day hunting down rumors, and then they don't pan out. And yeah. it's not like you can get mad at them for you know, doing their job the right way, um, But at the same time, you have nothing to show for it. And so, like, one of the reasons why we wanted to create this thing is that a lot of places respond to this problem by going the clickbaity way, where they report report, in quotation marks, what someone tweets, right, or what they heard someone say on TV, and then they write it up, or they steal someone else's stuff and rewrite it, you know, and that kind of thing. And there's a place for that, for some of that stuff. But we didn't want to do that because we think there's too much of that out there. And... The problem is, is like between the you, you and I, we know literally dozens and dozens of really sharp, serious, smart people. Um, but part of the problem is, is that some of those people, if if you can, like my AI, a lot of my AI colleagues, if they want to get something out there that they think is really important, they're of the stature that they can get in the New York Times op-ed page, right. and I can't begrudge them. If if the whole idea is to have impact in the debate and all that kind of stuff. If they want to get that kind of stuff out there and do it for, you know, the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal and that kind of stuff, it's a big favor for me to ask them to do it for me. For now. For now, yeah. I mean, one day they'll be begging me, you know, and, and, and oh, the tables will turn. But um, at the same time, there are a lot of busy people that you, we, uh, you can ask for running. But if you ask them to do it as a favor, they kind of dash something off. Right. We don't want that either. Right. We don't want a hot takey kind of thing. And so the the supply side thing has been a real challenge for us is to find smart people who can write um, and write well in an engaging way that don't need heroic editing um, to keep up that supply for the kind of st- to meet the kind of standards we want for our readers and I think this is surmountable I don't think this is like a yeah. fatal problem yeah. it's just you know between our budget and everything else and you know you and I are so busy with so many other things Um. um it just becomes difficult to sort of be monomaniacal about getting the kind of content that we that we want to get. But it's getting better and it just takes work. And one of the things I've been emphasizing, you've been emphasizing for a long time, is that we want to be very honest with our audience, with our listeners or subscribers, that that we're this is a work in progress. Sure. You know, and you know, we accidentally sent out my column the other day as a newsletter. That's, you know, because, you know, it was it was very much like the um, the Pepsi syndrome from Saturday Night Live. Someone left a big Pepsi on the nuclear reactor, and things went awry. <laughs> but um, uh, these kinds of problems, we just you know, this is these are growing pains. Yeah. But for the most part, you know, that side of things has been great. We've had some like technical issues with the audio, as some of our listeners know, and it turns out that once we you know um, put out enough lit cigarettes and in Caleb's our. Podcast producer's forehead. The audio improved, <laughs> and so, uh, um, but anyway, you know it, things are going really well. You know, in terms of paid subscribers, we are close to hitting our planned goal for the end of 2020. Yeah, certainly, maybe by this week, right? Um, yeah, it's really thinking. close. Yeah, I and think
1: it, by the time we put up the paywall. Yeah,
0: and on the revenue side, we passed our goal on the subscriber revenue already because of the life subscriptions. Certainly. And um, so this idea that there's no market for what we're doing, we've seen no actual data to support that yet.
1: No, we've seen uh, a lot of data that points in the other direction. Some of right. which we saw bef- as we were putting this together, which mm-hmm. encouraged us to do it. But certainly now there's a lot of things pointing in the direction. We don't know how big it is. I, I'm b- I believe it will be big. I think that we'll we'll have a lot of people who want this kind of fact driven reporting and analysis. Yeah, no, I mean the- not through the mainstream media, not through that sort of center left filter, but not the takey stuff and some of the fringy stuff that some of our uh, folks on the center right are doing not everybody yeah. and we certainly don't you know we haven't made the argument that we're the only people who can do that other other places are doing good reporting i mean i spend a lot of time reading a lot of the other yeah. stuff on the center right that we was, just think we <clears throat> excuse me we just think we have a particularly unique opportunity to to build on that yeah
0: stuff. that was that was one of my regrets about how some people took um like my friend Seth Mandel took the the atlantic piece um I don't think it's a quite a fair or accurate reading of what I said or um, because it was sort of in in McKay's phrasing, not mine. But regardless, you know, I think the examiner has a lot of good reporters and they do good reporting. It could do 100 percent only reporting. It could do and so could every other right of center outlet out there. There would still be a dearth of reporting on the right just because there are so few outlets out there doing it. And. Um, and then when you factor in the fact that you know, we, we're, we're, we're foregoing having ads and pop-up videos and you know, uh, and all the side boob clickbait stuff and all of that that some places need to do f- for revenue because um, we think that readers, it's a better experience if you don't have that stuff. Even if the content's great, um, we think we have a model here. And so far, if you read the comments section um, on our stuff, At least the people, I mean, it's a a filter bias problem, right? Because they're, by definition, the ones who like this stuff. But it's a really, the encouragement we get from our readers and listeners has been great.
1: Yeah, it has been. And on the the question of the stuff that we have done, I'm very happy with the quality of the work that we've published. I just want more of that high-quality work. I mean, we made a decision pretty early on that we were not going to, we to have you know whatever our artificial number was, three pieces a day, four pieces a day, that we were going to scramble and you know at ten o'clock at night after having four hours of sleep the night before, I was going to try to dash off right. a seven hundred word piece that made sense of some that you know, it would have been crummy work and and I think the more that you produce that crummy work and put it in front of your your readers, particularly your members, your paying readers. The less likely they are to want to come back to get right. the stuff that's really good, and we think—I mean, you know—it I, I, doesn't make sense to start naming them, but we've had some really outstanding pieces done by folks on staff here, but also some of the contributors that we've we've brought in. I mean, I think we're—you know—people are getting sort of an understanding of what's happening. That's kind of unique. We're we're offering these. Explainers, you know, one of the one of the things that kind of animates what we're doing on the editorial side is if anybody on staff has something where they say, I don't really get that. That just becomes a piece. And it's great. I mean those are, you know, some of the best things that we've published so far. Maybe we should
0: have this is
1: you people are privy to
0: brainstorming on the fly here. (laughs) Uh Oh Uh, (laughs) no, but maybe we should have a dedicated suggestion box for explainers. From readers that's a good idea you know and um, also for fact checks we kind of have something like that for fact checks right I mean is it fact check email? yeah
1: I mean we don't have a we don't have it fully operating right now but but we will I mean we could just set up an email address suggestions at the yeah. dispatchcom so don't hammer us with those yet but give it a day or two and we'll have that set up and if you have things that are happening in the news things that are happening in the world that you think could could use you know a day or two of real reporting conversations with experts interviews to present it in a way that's none of the explainers that we're doing are dumbed down which i think is really important i i can't remember if we talked about this on i don't think we talked about this here before so i'll keep brief in case i'm wrong but one of the places that i that I actually took my cues from as we were thinking about what kind of explainers we were going to do was Vox. Mm -hmm. And if you go back to the early years of Vox, they did some great explainers in a way that Matt Iglesias explained on their five-year anniversary what they were doing. And he mentioned, I think it was an ER surgeon that he knows who he said was considerably smarter than he was. She didn't need things dumbed down. She just wanted things explained because she didn't have time to Right. go from website to website to website to website to figure out what was happening. Those are the readers we have in mind when we write our explainers. So they're not, we're not treating people like they're morons. We're right. just saying, you're busy. Here's what this actually means. Here's what's happening. And I, but the number of people, you don't want to make too much of you know, in-person experiences or anecdotal evidence, but the number of people who have come to me and said, I find that stuff so incredibly useful...
0: Yeah, is uh, you no. Know, it's like my executive privilege explainer. I got a lot of great. Yeah, people yeah, that home. was perfect. That know. was great. You do run into the danger. I mean, I've said this a bunch of times on this sh- this podcast. Um, there's a po- possibly apocryphal story about when Richard Nixon was asked um, if he thought overpopulation was a problem, and Nixon said. Of course overpopulation is a problem. I mean, everywhere I go, I see huge crowds. <laughs> <laughs> you know? it's because you're president of the United States. You know, of course the people who are responding to our stuff positively are going to be, you know, we don't, you never hear from the people who hate us because they haven't even bothered to read it. You know, that kind of thing. But um, All right, so uh, what, can we, uh, what, what can we tell listeners to look forward to in the future?
1: The paywall. <laughs> um, we're looking at introducing the paywall finally uh, in middle of this month, mid-February. Um, it so will not affect podcasts. It will not affect podcasts, although people who become members will likely get sort of bonus podcast yes. material. Um, conversations that go beyond the, the conversations that will be publicly available to people. The um, old-
0: dog podcast maybe behind a paywall no just kidding just kidding <laughs> I think there's
1: I think there's room for that yeah if
0: you can do Spanish wine podcast I can do a dog podcast
1: I think that but we can't keep that from the people I mean we couldn't really just keep that behind the paywall because that's going to yeah. create huge demand obviously yeah and also
0: the people will do well enough keeping away from it on their own they don't need our help <laughs> You're just
1: nervous that it's going to reach the remnant numbers uh, you know yeah, those yeah, those yeah. kind of downloads
0: I I I I waking terror screaming <laughs> that the Spanish the Spanish wine pot not even the wine podcast, but the Spanish wine podcast will be like a, a prairie fire of pop- popularity. I mean yeah. if
1: I gave if I gave a good value Spanish wine once a week, a little five minute podcast, mm-hmm. it'd be clamoring for that. People would be like sending us emails. When is this thing gonna be posted?
0: Yeah. They'll also be sending emails saying that's five minutes too long <laughs> <laughs> All right. uh, Anything else that we need to cover here? Anything?
1: I don't think so. Okay.
0: Um, So uh, in a future podcast soon, I will introduce you to the new Jack Butler, but we're going to keep him. He needs to spend at least another 24 hours in the kennel. Um, And uh, (laughs) other than that, um, I'll see you next time.